you know, a lot of times when we think about the Old Testament, uh, here's what we think. Wow, that's old. <laughs> it's just old, isn't it? That's what we think. And then we think about the New Testament and we think, well, it's, that's not much better. That's pretty old too. But at least in the New Testament, at least you might say, well, we, we can at least see a better picture of Jesus in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. So sometimes we say that. But listen to this. Jesus Christ himself said this. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, he says, the volume of the scripture, in other words, all of the scripture is written, Jesus said, about me. He said, it's written about me. That's what Jesus said. But Jesus was not talking about the New Testament. Jesus was talking about the Old Testament. So I think we owe it to ourselves to know more. And it was the apostle Paul, though, in the New Testament who said this. He said, all scripture is God-breathed, and it is good for teaching, for learning. And Paul was not talking about the New Testament. Paul was talking about the Old Testament. So I think we owe it to ourselves to know more. Everything that is there in the Old Testament, it is there by God's design. And I could say every word, every space between the words, every comma, apostrophe, every, everything there is there by God's design. And here's how I can prove that. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, verse, starting with verse 17. Jesus said, don't assume that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. He said, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then he goes on. Here's listen to the point he's, he's saying. Verse 18. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, until everything that has been said and that has to happen is done. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. He says, not even a single letter will go unfulfilled, not even a stroke of a letter. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying not a comma, not a period, not an apostrophe, none of that will go away until the law, until everything in there has been done the way God said it's going to be done. In other words, every letter is in there for a purpose. Do you believe that? Let me try to give you some evidence that what Jesus is saying is accurate. Proving that even the smallest letter, the placement even of that letter is intentional. You see, God commanded the Jewish people to celebrate or observe certain holidays. And he called these holidays appointed times. Sometimes he called them seasons or holidays or festivals. Levit Leviticus 23 is when God kind of rolls this out in an official form, starting with verse 1 of chapter 23. He said, the Lord spoke to Moses. He said, speak to the Israelites and tell them, these are my appointed times. Same word translated festivals or holidays, special, uh, uh, special holidays, seasons. The times, these are my appointed times, the times of the Lord that you will, pro uh, that you will proclaim as sacred assemblies. In other words, these are festivals, holidays. And so God's plan for these appointed times, these um, seasons, were not spur of the moment. They, they, he didn't just decide as the Israelites were wandering through the desert and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give them some special time to focus, to help them stay focused. I'm, I'm going to give them some holidays, festivals. Nope. God actually had all of these festivals in mind before creation. Now understand, 
the, the word for festivals, it appears for the very first time all the way back at creation and the description of creation at Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Listen to how Moses wrote this down. He said, said in verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And these lights, you know, we understand that these are stars, planets that reflecting the light, you know, stars in the sky that we see at night, moons, suns from other galaxies. We see these at night as stars. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for festivals. In other words, when the stars hit certain points, that's how they track days, nights, and different times of the year with stars. And people navigate with stars when they're in ships and things like that. So, of course, now we have GPS. But back then. So, let let these be these stars in the sky. They're going to use them to designate certain, God says, certain festivals or another word for that, appointed times, seasons, holidays. And then he said also for days and years. But I want you to clue in on the fact of this, that God at creation, he said these festivals, these festivals are going to happen according to certain times of the years. And you'll know that by how the stars and everything line up. God gave the Jewish people these festivals to celebrate. And we've been talking about this, how all of those festivals give us some kind of picture, example of Jesus. And understand what we just read in Genesis. It tells us that God planned these festivals, all of which that give us a picture of the Messiah, a picture of Jesus. God planned these before Adam and Eve ever sinned. He already had these festivals that picture Jesus. He already had them planned and on his calendar before Adam and Eve sinned. Before Adam and Eve would ever create a need for a Savior, God already had these festivals on his calendar and all of those festivals that would point to Jesus. And we didn't even need a Jesus yet. You know why? He he already had them on his calendar before he even created Adam and Eve. He already had on his calendar the festivals that point to Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Savior of souls that he would create before he ever created the first soul. He had these on his calendar. He planned them before Adam and Eve. That's pretty impressive, right? But it gets better. If you were to add up all of the holidays that God makes official In the book of Leviticus, if you were to add up all the holidays, the festivals, those special holy days, it would come to a total of 70, which means God said you will celebrate over the course of the year these 70 days, specifically when they fall according to the cycles of the moon, blah, 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 blah. When they fall on that day, you will celebrate. And there were 70 official holidays, holy days, special days, appointed times, festivals. Now, the Hebrew word for festivals, now the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, that Hebrew word for festivals, it shows up for the first time in Genesis, and it's called this, homoiadim. Now, that's the Hebrew word. You're not going to hear me probably talk about that word, if any, past 
today's teaching because it didn't mean a lot to us, that Hebrew word. But we need to talk about this specific Hebrew word for just a moment. McKinley has it on the screen for you there. Hamoyadim. That's the word that you're looking at on the screen. And by the way, I just want to point something out. Um, look at these little characters right here. See those? Those little marks? Those aren't actually letters. These are accent marks. The uh, King James Version translates the, this these words here, uh, I mean, the word for these marks as, he translates uh, those as um, jots and tittles. Because when Jesus said not a letter or not a stroke of a letter will go by, and the word used that actually describes better what the Hebrew word is, Jesus said not a jot or a tittle will pass away. And you're like, when you read the King James, you're like, what's a jot? I have no idea what a jot or a tittle is. I have no idea. Well, you're looking at a jot and a tittle right there. You see them. Those are what they're talking about. So in the English translations of the Bible, they're helping you understand what that really means. Because a jot and a tittle doesn't mean anything to us. So that's why what I just read to you says, not a letter or the a stroke of a letter. So, in other words, what Jesus is saying is not a comma, not a period, not a, not, a, not, a, not a quotation mark. None of that will pass away before the law has been accomplished, which is saying the same thing as not a jot or a tittle. In other words, God's plan for the Bible is so specific. That every stroke of a letter, every dot, every comma, every period, every jot, every tittle is in there by design on purpose. That's what Jesus was saying. And now you're looking at some jots and some tittles and some letters and some strokes of letters. And it's all in there on purpose by design. Now this is going to be fun. We're going to look at this for just a moment in detail. There are no accidents in God's scripture and the words. When you look at the Hebrew language as God had this recorded and written down for us, there are no accidents. If you were to take the book of Genesis, and if you were to take every word and just kind of cram them together in one long line to where it was letter after letter after letter in order, there would be all the words added there together. There would be just over 78,000 letters in Hebrew, Hebrew letters in the book of Genesis, just over 78,000. And if you were to place them in order, you could find some some other words. Let, let me tell you kind of a process for doing that. It's, it's called, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the term here for a moment. It's called equidistant, that's one word, equidistant letter sequence. Sometimes you see this like in movies when someone is uh, trying to get a secret message to somebody. So if you had something you could read, you know, a, a little sentence or a paragraph, and then they told you a number, then what they're telling you is you take that number and you count that many letters 
So let's just say it was 10. So you take whatever was there and you count out 10 letters. So there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And you take that letter and you drop it down and you write that down. And then you start from there where you are and you count 10 more letters. 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. You take that letter, you drop it down. It's kind of a puzzle kind of game, right? You've probably done that as a kid. Count 10 more letters and you drop it down. And then those letters form a word, right? It's kind of a, a secret, kind of a fun little code thing hidden within the words. Well, just listen to this. With an equidistant letter sequence, which is what that is, if you take the word homoiodem, this, this word that McKinley has on the screen right there, if you take that word, which literally translated means appointed times, it literally means festivals, special holidays, you take that word, which is mentioned for the very first time in the verse we just read, um, Genesis 1.14, where it says, I've put these stars in the sky so that you could know when to celebrate, no day and night, times of the year, blah, 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 and know when to celebrate certain festivals, holidays, appointed times. That word appears right there for the first time. So if you look in the book of Genesis and you were to do and cram all the words together in one long line, and that would be 78,000 letters in a row. And if you were to start looking for that one word, homoidim, statistically, you should find that word about five times. Um, that it just should happen. It just, you should find it about five times in that with di at different intervals. You know, maybe five or say you could go through a whole list of up to 78,000, you know, and it should happen about five times. Well, the reality is it does not happen five times. Um, it happens only one single time. You can only find the word homoiodim one single time. It should happen five but it only happens once. That's interesting that it would only happen one time when it should happen five. It's not that impressive. It just seems like a coincidence, but it does only happen once. But here's where it gets a little more impressive. The one time it does happen in the book of Genesis, the one time it does happen, it happens at an equidistance between the letters. The sequence is 70. Now, Interesting, because the word itself means appointed times, festivals, special holidays. And how many are there that are appointed by God for the Jewish people? Do you remember what I said? There are 70. That's how many God said. There will be 70. And you find that word in the book of Genesis with that every 70th letter, starting with where you find that for every 70th, boom, there, write that letter down. Right, the next one. It happens one time at an interval of 70. That's pretty impressive. That doesn't sound very much like an accident. But it gets better. I said it only happens one time in the book of Genesis, and that's accurate. One time. If you take the center of this word, homoiading, if you take the center of the Hebrew word, it lines up in the book of Genesis. It is centered on one verse in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Do you know the verse it is centered on? The verse it is centered on, I'm sure you've already guessed it. 
is Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, where that word is used to introduce God's appointed festivals, his appointed times, his special holy days. That's where it is centered. It happens one time, it should happen five. It happens once. It's at an interval of 70. There are 70 special holidays, holy days for the Jewish people. And it is centered on that one verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. That's not a coincidence. In fact, the odds of that happening just by coincidence, the odds of that just happening are 70 million to 1. And if you're a Dumb and Dumber fan, you're saying, so you're telling me there's a chance. No, what I'm telling you is, no, there's no chance. There's absolutely no chance that can be an accident. That is what they would call absurd. An absurd chance. It can't happen by coincidence. That is not an accident. Now think with me for a moment. No accident. And they didn't have the ability to run that through and to determine that back then. They couldn't have counted all of that out and run the odds and run the statistics. Something like that is placed there for a time such as this. When God knew we would have the technology to be able to dig something like that out. And it's almost as if God is placing his thumbprint on his scripture and with, this, with something like this and saying, Hey, I just want to remind you in 2018... 2018 years since Jesus died. I just want to remind you that, hey, this is mine. A little clue for you guys who are coming later. This is mine. This is my plan. There's no accident in this. I have planned this. I have designed this. I have orchestrated this. I just want you to be aware. This is mine from the beginning of time. All the way back in Genesis. At creation. Before I created Adam and Eve. Before they sinned. My plan for redemption was already in place. It was on my calendar. You didn't know about it. But it was on my calendar. God took his time. To plan these festivals which give us a glimpse, a picture of Jesus. So I think we owe it to ourselves to know more. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to ourselves and we owe it to the creator of this masterpiece. This 4D, four-dimensional work of art as he gives us a picture of Jesus through these festivals. We owe it to ourselves to look at it. To look at them and to appreciate them, to admire them, and to possibly, possibly allow them to change our perceptions. God's holy days, he set them aside for the nation of Israel to focus on what God chose for them to focus upon for that holy day. And they're listed in Leviticus chapter 23. And all of these holidays that God told them to celebrate, they all look back at history, some kind of history of the nation of Israel. And at Leviticus 23, when God told Moses to write those down, at that point, they were also all looking forward at something that would happen in the future. Now, some of those things since then have happened, but some of them are still waiting to happen. Now, last week we told you about the Feast of the, what's called the Passover. 
And how that Passover feast celebration is a picture of the coming sacrifice of Jesus who would die on the Roman cross. And Jesus fulfilled that feast perfectly. And I hope if you missed last week, I hope you will go back uh, to SoundCloud and listen to last week's teaching. I hope you'll listen to that again. We talked about that, how Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God, and He died on the very day that all the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. Not an accident. Here's how God kind of rolls this out in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 4. He says, these are the Lord's appointed times, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim uh, at their appointed times. And he gives the first one we talked about last week. The Passover to the Lord comes in the first month at twilight on the 14th day of the month. That is what we talked about last week, the Passover. Now for this week, this festival this week, verse 6. The festival of unleavened bread to the Lord is on the 15th day. Of the same month. And for seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Now this was a command to the nation of Israel. So this is the next day. So day on 14th, that was Passover. And the very next day, the the feast of unleavened bread began. Now while the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, it was torn down for the last time in 70 A.D., But while it was still standing, all the male Israelites for this specific festival, the festival of unleavened bread, were uh, demanded, they were commanded to attend personally that festival. They had to all travel to Jerusalem for that festival. This is the second feast in this whole thing. First was Passover, and the very next day, the second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God told them, during this seven days, while you celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, during that seven days, if you eat any bread, it can only be unleavened bread. You're to eat that every single day for seven days. Now, in the Bible, leaven, which is yeast, um, it represents sin. It's not really sin. It's a picture of sin. It represents sin. So for this festival... For them to be eating unleavened bread over a period of seven days, it was kind of a reminder, uh, kind of telling them, you are God's chosen people, and you are to walk with, feast on, consume only unleavened bread. As if they are feasting on the bread of life itself. And who is the bread of life that we, we learn? The bread of life is Jesus. Now, Paul commented on the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread in the New Testament, and he ties it all to Jesus. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. He said, your boasting, he's talking to this church at Corinth, your boasting is not good, he said. He's basically saying, that's a sin. You don't need to be doing it. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know, Paul says, that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough. Now, here's what Paul is talking about. When they would make their dough every day, they had to make it every day, they would make their dough, and and it was a yeast dough. So yeast bread, which in the Bible, yeast is symbolic of sin. When they made that dough, they would take a pinch of that dough off and set it aside. A pinch of the yeast bread and set it aside, just the dough. 
And then they would go on and make that bread and cook it, and that would be for their day. But when they went to make bread for the next day, they mixed all these ingredients together, but they didn't have little packets of yeast like we have. I mean, they didn't have a packet of yeast and rip it open and pour the yeast in. They didn't have that. So they, um, what they would do... They would mix the ingredients together and it would be unleavened bread until they took that little bit of pinch of dough that they set aside the day before and they would add it to their dough, mix it in. And before long, it took almost no time at all, that yeast would work its way through the entire new batch of dough. And before they baked it, they would take another pinch off, set it aside, and that would be for the next day. And what Paul is saying is, listen, if sin is represented here by yeast, you're, you're unleavened. You, you have been made holy by God. You've been made holy. He paid the price for your sin. He's made you holy. Why are you taking leaven, sin, and putting it into your mix? Don't you know, Paul is saying, it only takes a very little bit of sin to mix into your life before your life is full of sin. That's what Paul is saying, the example he's giving. And he goes on to say in verse 7, clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. In other words, take all the yeast out of the house. That yeast you set aside, that little bitty bit, he said, take it in a spiritual sense, a symbolic sense. Take it all out of your house. Take all the sin out of your car and out of your computer and out of your life. He said, take it all out so that you can remain unleavened. As your sin has been forgiven by God, take all of that mess out of your life. That's what Paul is saying. Clean it out. You indeed are unleavened. And here's how he describes that. For Christ, our Passover. Do you understand? Right there in that moment, Paul is saying, listen, we all know that all the festivals, they represent Jesus. So Christ, who is your Passover, he said, has been sacrificed. He was your Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. He's talking about the Passover, clearly. In verse 8, therefore, because of that, then what happens the next day after Passover? It is the feast of unleavened bread. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, let us observe the feast. What is he talking about? What feast? The feast of unleavened bread. That seven-day period. Let us observe the feast not with old yeast. In other words, let's get rid of that. Let's empty it out of our house, out of our home, out of our life. Not with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you get what Paul is saying? He's saying these feasts represent Jesus. And God uses phrases and, uh, and words to describe himself. We read that all through the scripture. For instance... God describes himself, Jesus, as the Lamb of God. That's what we talked about last week. So that is what you could call a word picture. It's using a word, and it gives you a picture of, to describe. In this case, a word picture to describe Jesus, the Lamb of God. So when we hear Jesus is the Lamb of God, we think, oh yeah, Lamb of God, sacrifice. The Lamb of God, sacrifice. He gives us other word pictures. Um, on my drive-in this morning, I was thinking, you know, yes, Jesus, the shepherd. That gives us a word, a picture of Jesus caring for as a shepherd, caring for us, caring for you as a shepherd. Jesus, the shepherd. We have other word pictures that we see in the Bible. Jesus as the light 
of the world that gives us a word, a picture to describe who Jesus is. And God provides these examples for us to help us understand him. And now we have Jesus in this festival, the word picture to describe who Jesus is, is Jesus, the bread of life. So that gives us a word that gives us a picture, a description, an understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus, the bread of life. So let's think about that for a moment. So if Jesus is the bread of life, then here we understand Jesus is being described as unleavened bread, which means if leaven or yeast is a symbol for sin, then the word picture God is giving us, Jesus as unleavened bread, bread with no yeast, Jesus is then sinless. He is holy. He's pure. That's the picture God gives us, this word picture, Jesus as the unleavened bread. There's more. Jesus, if you recall from, our, from Christmas time and the stories in the Bible that describe that, Jesus was born in a very specific place. Who remembers where Jesus was born? There's a song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, right? I heard you say it. O Little Town of Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. Do you know what happened in Bethlehem? Oh, no, let's, let's, um, let's say it this way. Do you know what the word Bethlehem means? The word literally means, in Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. So here we have God who describes himself as Jesus, describes himself as the bread of life. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. How cool is that? Not an accident. It's not a dink. God planned that. Jesus, the bread of life, born at the house of bread. Interesting. Um, Jesus uses this bread image, this word picture, to even describe himself. Listen to what he said in John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus said, I assure, this was just days, uh, or uh, yeah, we could even add it up to hours, not long, days before Jesus would die on the cross. I assure you, Jesus said, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. Now, Jesus is describing himself as a grain of wheat, which they got the picture clearly. Because the grain of wheat is exactly what is for them, in most cases, their source for bread. And Jesus is saying, I am that source. I am that bread. I am that grain that makes that bread. And this grain, this grain that makes that bread, this grain must die. That's what Jesus was saying. He's saying, I must die and be put in the ground. There's more examples of God and bread in the Bible. When the, Moses left Egypt after they were slaves for 400 years, God freed them with, with uh, Moses being their guide. And then because of their decisions and some stupid things, they end up wandering around the desert for 40 years. But during that 40 years, 
God still took care of them. And you know how he fed them every single day while they were wandering around in the desert? God fed them with this special bread that he provided. In the Bible they call it manna. God provided for them daily. They, they feasted daily on manna. That was in the Old Testament and the Israelites. And now today, New Testament times after Jesus died on the cross, God is still feeding. All of those who believe in him, who follow him, God is still feeding them now the bread of life through Jesus. Even the very piece of bread. You know, I told you that the Israelites um, have to eat unleavened bread for a week during this festival. Now, we used some unleavened bread last week for our communion. This is a, a piece of that. And today, Miss Karen made this for us. I was so grateful. Actual unleavened bread. And in the modern uh, uh, oven, she was, able to, she was able to get this flat. It's flat. It's, there's no yeast in it. And she put it in the oven, and it cooked evenly. It cooked evenly. And so this is what we have. When they were cooking their bread... In the Old Testament, they didn't have a modern oven, obviously, and things weren't even, and there was fire involved. And, and so they ended up with bread that was a little more crisp and hard and snappy, like a cracker. Um, and, um, and you would see um, dark spots on it um, that kind of where, where it was on the thing they were cooking it on. It was getting hot and, and leaving lines and marks where it got hot, kind of stripes on there. Even the bread. And today, this is an example of what uh, a Jewish family today would use at the Passover meal and also at, during the week of unleavened bread. They would, in most cases, eat something like this today. And here's what's interesting about even what they are still eating today, how it is still a picture of Jesus. Even the very bread that they use to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, if you look closely at this, I'm going to try to turn it. Yeah, there we go, right there. You can see, um, you can't see, I'm going to point this out. There are lots of holes that have been punched into this. And the reason is when they don't want it to start to, to, to physically bubble up and rise. It can actually get yeast out of the air and become leaven. So they, they don't want, they have to do this very quickly. And so they punch a bunch of holes and, and just kind of pierce and puncture all through uh, the bread before it's baked so that it won't develop these bubbles and pop up. And that's why they punch all these holes in it to kind of let the air escape and, and so it can remain flat. And today, even today, rabbis say that the matzah, this is called matzah, the unleavened bread that they use must have holes punched all in it and pierced all through it so that those bubbles can escape and it will remain flat. That's what rabbis say today. It still must be that way. That's the way it was. It must be that way still today. And if you also look, then you can see these, this striping that goes through, these little uh, these little extra toasty mark that goes all the way through. They say, now in our example, we had a modern oven and so we don't have striping. We don't have on, on what we used the other day. But the rabbi says, you know what? 
if you're going to, as a Jewish family, you have to have the puncture marks and you have to have the striping that goes across it. You see that? He said, that must be there. So even the piece of bread that they use, even to this day, because theirs, uh, as they were leaving Egypt, theirs were striped and burned like that and toasty marks, and it was punctured. And the Jewish family stays still. Yep, that still happens today. You're, if, it's, if you're going to use it for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it has to be like that. Doesn't have to be square. No big deal. It can be round. It can be weird shaped. Doesn't matter. But it has to have those punches. It has to have the stripes. I don't think that's an accident. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah chapter 53, way years, 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 hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born on the earth, the prophet Isaiah gives us a picture of what was going to happen to the Messiah, our bread of life. Listen to how he describes it. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, starting with verse 5. And he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Pierced. The bread of life was pierced. It goes on. It says, punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. And that word for wounds is also translated stripes. We were healed by his stripes. And if you want to be real super sensitive to that, a very literal translation of that Hebrew word, we are healed by his wounds that lay in stripes. And we understand that Jesus, when he, before he went to the cross, that's what happened to him. As he was beaten, those wounds that were opened up on his back and his body in stripes. And this is also a picture of Jesus, obviously, because it's the festival of unleavened bread. There's no leaven. There's no yeast in it. So this is pure. And Jesus is pure. He is absolutely sinless. So once again, we see this feast, this one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, fulfilled in a remarkable and an unmistakable way. Jesus died at the first festival, the Passover, and he died on the very day that the sacrificial lambs were being sacrificed. And that's when Jesus died. And Jesus then was buried at the beginning of this second feast, Jesus was buried as they began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was on the 15th of Nisan. On this very day, the 15th of Nisan, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, our kernel of wheat, as Jesus described himself, was indeed placed in the ground. He was dead. Now think with me for a moment. Do you know how long it usually took for somebody to die on the cross? It usually took days for somebody to die on the cross. Days. Once Jesus was on the cross, 
for other people, usually three days it would take to die, but not Jesus. Jesus died very quickly on the cross. And, 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 and a slow death on the cross was the point. The Romans were experts at, at slow death and killing people. Because here's why. They died slowly so that as people would walk by, and it was a horrible, shameful, humiliating death. As people would walk by day and night, they would see that person dying day after day after day. They would see that same person dying. And the people who were down in the village looking up the, the, the mountain, up the hill, they would see that up there, that person dying very slowly day after day. And they would be reminded we should be afraid of the Romans and their government. So we should submit to them and obey them because look at what they will do. That's why they died so slowly and that's why they perfected this art of crucifixion. And even the lead soldier who was there, who was there leading the whole crucifixion for Jesus, he was crucifying a strong young carpenter. And he was even shocked at how quickly Jesus died. Jesus died in just six hours when it normally took three days for somebody to die. Jesus died in six hours. And we might ask ourselves, well, why, why did Jesus die so quickly? But those who have been looking at the vivid four-dimensional works of art that, G, that God gave us through these festivals to point toward Jesus and what he was going to do and some of the things that he will do, we don't have to speculate why Jesus died in a short mere six hours because we simply understand the schedule for the two feasts. Jesus had to die on Passover because that's when the sacrificial lambs died. And he had to be buried at sundown on that same day because that's the picture that God gave us. That's when the feast of of uh, unleavened bread began. He had to be placed in the ground on that day because that's what the picture that God gave us demands. If Jesus was on the cross any longer, Jesus would have missed God's festival calendar. Jesus was placed on the cross at 9 a.m. and he was taken down dead, stone cold dead at 3 p.m. That way there was time to wrap his body and bury him in the ground at sundown. Right in time for the feast of unleavened bread to begin. The answer to why Jesus died in six hours, the answer is that's all the time he could spare. That's all the time he had. Because Jesus clearly said, listen, no one is killing me. No one is taking this from me. I am determining when and, and where and how. Here's what he said and before he died. John 10, verse 18. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to. In other words, I'm not going to die when they say I'm going to die. 
I'm going to die at a specific time, specific place, in, in a specific way. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. In other words, I will draw my last breath at the exact moment that I determine it is time. And then I will live again and draw a breath back into that dead body at the exact moment, the exact time that it needs to happen. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, he's saying, I'm God. I am still in control. I will die at just the right time. And this was according to God's timing, according to God's plan. And it was in keeping with the picture that God provided us through the feast of Israel. You see, God was not going to miss even the smallest detail. God's timing is perfect. God does not get things taken away from him. God does not get talked into something that is not already a part of his plan and his will. In fact, I would even say this. You are even here today in this building as part of God's plan. It is no accident that you are here today. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted for seven days. And they ate nothing during the, no other types of bread during that week except unleavened bread. And here's my challenge to you this week. No matter where you are in your journey with Jesus, no matter how far you are from him or no matter how close you feel to him, here is my challenge for you. Over the next seven days, the next seven days, will you feast upon Jesus, the bread of life? How, you, how do you do that, you say? Well, here's what I'm asking. Will you feast upon his words and who he is over the next seven days? Will you feast on him and his words every single day? For the next seven days. Jesus is the bread of life. You know we have people who say. Yeah I'm, I'm a Christ follower. But yet. You look at their lives. And they are starving to death. Because they never feast. On the bread of life. Spiritually speaking. They're starving to death. They never feast on God. On his word. On Jesus. The bread of life. Because they'll say something like this. Well Harley. You know I'm just not a reader. Or they'll say, Harley, I, yeah, I, I just don't like to read. And I think to myself, Re really? I, I mean, you're going to tell me that spiritually you are starving to death. Spiritually, you are stunting your growth. You are malnourished spiritually because you simply won't feed yourself. You refuse to feed yourself. While the feast is right there, it is right beside you in God's word. And you refuse, you refuse to feed yourself Monday through Saturday. So my challenge is this. Feast on Jesus this week, on his words this week. Will you join me? And if you're not sure how to start that, I'm going to, Teach you how through my on my blog this week. I'm going to teach you how to feast on Jesus on his words this week. I'll try to put a link to that on Facebook as we go. 
will you join me to feast on the words of Jesus over the next seven days this week? Let's pray. Father, it seems that we are so ready to claim that we follow you. But who are we kidding? Who are we really following? We claim you as as our Savior and our source of life, but yet we don't feast on your words of life. We, We claim you. We just don't have time for you, Jesus. Please forgive us. May we repent and may we change our minds. May may we turn around that habit of claiming you but not really following you. This week, Jesus, may you bless us with your words in direct proportion to how much time we invest into reading and understanding your words. May we take your words deep into our life this week and, and may we live your words over the next seven days. And God, I I pray that that will lead us into a lifelong habit of being in your word every day. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being the bread of life. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.